Um, We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, let's turn there and we'll be on the screens as well. But Philippians 2 verse 2 says this, complete my joy, Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, guys, be united. Be together. Don't be divided. Stand together. It's quite an instruction. Easy, right? Be united. Easy. No? Have you ever tried to tell two little kids, please, guys, just get on. Just get on. Maybe you've got, maybe you've got, um, maybe you have children or, or niece and nephew, and if you've ever just said to them, just, can you, just for five minutes, please, can you get on? You know that you can't just tell people and force people to be united. You can't do it. I mean, you can, but it won't be loving. You either try and you'll fail, or you use fear or intimidation. That's what happens in some nations around the world, um, in, in governments and stuff, but you, you can't have true unity by doing that. Is Paul just commanding unity bluntly? No. Paul always gives a wonderful gospel motivation context. He gives a reason to do the things that we're called to in the Bible. Paul says, love each other, but he doesn't just give a command. He gives a spectacular motivation. So my name's Luke. I'm one of the elders here um, at Life Church. Uh, and this morning, as you know, this is our Serving Sunday. So it's a chance to focus on what it looks like to humbly love and serve one another in the church. A chance to look at what it means to be the people of God. Because if serving and loving and preferring each other isn't at the heart, I'm not sure we're really the people of God that the Bible speaks about. But if I stood up this morning and just told you, serve better, do more, I'm not sure we'd get very far. Maybe it would achieve some rotor, uh, would fix some rotor issues in the short term, wouldn't it? I might be able to convince you to plug a few gaps on a rotor here or there. I might be able to convince you to help out in a way or two, but long term, what are we achieving? Because there's many different reasons why people serve, right? There's many different motivations behind why we might do that. One motivation might be you should serve someone, you should serve one another in the church. Why? Because it's necessary. It's quite a good reason, to be honest. It's quite a lot of need, and it's not frivolous stuff, it's really important stuff. Think about some of the teams that just stood up. They're doing wonderful things, and there's quite a lot of need there. So it's quite a good motivation. You know, there's lots to do, but actually, if we think about it, if that's our only motivation, How quickly does it become serve? There's stuff to do, so can you just be quiet and get on with it? It's that motivation we want as a church. Maybe another one, serve because the Bible tells us to. It does, right? That's a good motivation in some ways. The Bible does tell us to. But if we do it out of a cold heart, oh, God told me to. And every Sunday morning, if you're on an early morning setup team, you kind of roll out of bed and think, why did I sign up to this rotor? Why did I do this? You're thanking God this morning because, oh, yes, we've got an extra hour in bed. But other weeks, I'm very grumpy about the fact I surf. Well, actually, what's that achieving? If our motivation is cold obedience. God doesn't want cold obedience. He wants joyful, life-giving obedience to the one who served us. Maybe some people's motivation is to look good. You might laugh at that, um, but I was an intern in my church in Cambridge, and I know the conversation that went round. The more chairs you can lift, the more impressive you are to the other girls in the church. Some people serve because it looks good. I'm not condoning that. 
but some of you know. No, I'm joking. I'm not looking at any of our ex-interns in the room who just got married. No, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. It was Zoom when you were an intern. You couldn't lift chairs. Um, so you're off the hook there. But the question is, what drives you? What motivates you to godly living? Because the motivation behind why we do things is critical. It's central to what we do. If we're honest, what creeps in? How does the motivation shift over time? Because if we just do things for the wrong motivation, we can start going down a slippery slope. If anything but the good news of Jesus motivates us, if anything but that, anything but his goodness to us, the way he loves us, the way he graciously, mercifully poured out his life to us, if anything but that motivates us, actually, I would encourage you, slam on the brakes and stop. It's a dangerous road you're going down. We don't want anything but the gospel to drive us. And that's the joy of what we're looking at this morning because Paul in Philippians shows again and again and again how in his life, everything is for Jesus. Now, some of you will know um, that Philippians is called Philippians because there's a dude called Paul who's a very early Christian leader. He wrote letters to churches and this church was in a place uh, in what's now called Greece in Macedonia then called Philippi. He was writing to them. Uh, he loved them. He knew them, but he was... He was in prison and he was possibly just about to be executed, okay? This was a point of his life. He was, he, he was looking death in the face. And yet in that very letter, he can say things like, to live is Christ. In chapter three, he can say things like, I count everything as rubbish for the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Yeah, so Paul is someone who his whole life is driven because of Jesus. Because Jesus is so good because Jesus is so worthy, because he has served me, because he has loved me. And so Paul, in this letter, you see it oozing throughout the whole thing. He is someone whose whole life is driven by the gospel of Christ. But he also is someone who calls the church to do the same. And that's what I slightly cheekily read, chapter two, verse two, the command, but I didn't read verse one, where even there, Paul is motivating the church. It's quite a fun way of doing it, actually. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. You know, Paul is saying, guys, you know how good God is. Yeah, I, I don't need to tell you again, do I? You know how good God is. If you've seen the goodness of God, the wonderfulness of Christ, then make my joy complete. Be unified. Be unified. But where in those first two verses, Paul is quite generic. He's talking about service, talking about love, talking about unity in quite a generic way. What we're going to focus on actually is verse 3 to 11 now, which is where he starts to get specific. Specific about the call to love other people, serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as the church. But even better, specific about how Christ has served us. We're going to read probably the most beautiful poem about Jesus and his service of us in just a few minutes, just towards the end of the passage. But we're going to uh, go through Paul's reasoning before we get there. So let's open our Bible. Oh, no, we've already opened our Bibles, haven't we? Very good. Um, <laughs> let's pick up again uh, from verse 3. Paul says this to the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You probably know by now, quite um, like maths, I love maths growing up, 
Um, maybe this is strange of me. I used to double numbers in my head. Does anybody do that? Phil's saying it's strange of me. You know, 2, 4, 8, 16, 30, 64, 128. I know a few nods. I love stuff like that. Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. Count it up. Think about it. Count it up. Paul says, what value do we put on people? How do we add someone up? How do we measure whether they're worth our time or not? How do we measure whether they're worth befriending, speaking to maybe after a service, investing in? What do we consider when we look at someone? Because sometimes we avoid people because of shyness. That's not always the reason, the motivation. Why? Because Paul is warning us against slipping into some dangerous things, which, to be honest, we can all slip into. He uses two phrases, selfish ambition and conceit. If you don't have a clue what conceit is, we'll explain it in a second. (laughs) It's not a very common English word. But selfish ambition, this is what it means. Selfish is about me, 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 and ambition is about what I'm trying to achieve. So selfish ambition, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. What does he mean? Selfish ambition is saying what I'm doing and what I want and what I'm trying to achieve is more important. More important than what kind of doesn't matter. It's just more important. That's selfish ambition, okay? Many of us would have seen this in the workplace. There's a job opening. Maybe there's a pay rise opportunity. And you've seen that person kind of throwing a couple of elbows to make sure they can work their way up the ladder, even if it hurts people, even if it costs others. That's selfish ambition. But if we're honest, it sneaks into our own hearts, doesn't it? What maybe started as um, a desire to work hard for our family, because that's good, that's important, slips into kind of a bit of a worship of our career, where actually I'm going to invest in my work in such a way that that's starting to cost the very family that I got into the work to serve. It's easy for it to creep in. Maybe you're a student, maybe you're at school, and you study for exams. Maybe that was last summer, maybe you're doing mocks now, and you have, a, you have a motivation to work. Some of you will be like, I do not have that. But some of you will have a motivation to work. And that's good. That's a good thing. But what about if a friend says to you, oh, can you help me with something? And you reply, I don't have the time. I'm busy studying. We just have to be careful sometimes when we slip. What starts as a good motivation to study and work hard slips into, I'm going to do well, even at the cost of others. That's where it slips into selfish Ambition. It's easy to slip into for all of us. Why? Because we're naturally selfish. We're naturally really selfish people. (laughs) We are. If we're honest, we are. And this happens in church all too easily. If we're honest, this happens here too. This happens with us in our hearts about church. Sometimes we get bored of our little local church. Maybe it doesn't scratch the itch that we wanted it to. Maybe with teaching or with serving opportunities. And so we start to invest more heavily outside the church than inside the church. And what we realize is that maybe what started as a good expression of the gifts that God has given us has become an indulgence. Now, you need to use wisdom to apply these things because all these things might have good motivation behind them, but they might not. We have to check our hearts because it's easy to slip into selfish ambition. What about conceit? Funny word, isn't it? Conceit. I don't know if many of you use that day to day. It means arrogance. It means uh, elevated sense of self, pride. And that can slip in just as easily, can't it? 
If selfish ambition says, what I want is more important, conceit can look at another person and say, what you are is less. Maybe what you want is less, but also maybe who you are is less. And conceit can just just become a bit of a heart attitude. So we only befriend, befriend those we'll get something back from. That's easy to do. I've done that. It's easy to do. And we start to avoid people who are a bit more maybe awkward, a bit more difficult. We forget they're the very people Christ came and hung out with. And we, let's be honest, even now some of us will be defensive in our hearts. Hey, I have good reasons. I'm prioritizing. I'm being wise. You might be. I can't judge your heart. I'm not here to tell you you're doing it wrong. Sometimes if we're really honest with ourselves, there are things that creep in. There's a pride, a selfishness that creeps in. I battle with conceit. Let's not pretend. For me, it's expressed as self-pity. That's quite easy to do. I don't know if some of you are mopers. <laughs> and what happens is I do something, but in my heart I say, oh, why do I have to do it? Why does it have to be me? There are more important things or, or things I enjoy more or, or, or why can't I be resting? And my heart just starts to come out as I should be doing something other than this. What is that? It's pride, isn't it? That's how it's expressed for me. It'll be expressed differently in us. And over the years, I have to wrestle with that. God, actually, there's, there is a pride that looks down on others. It's expressed as self-pity, but that's what it is. But Paul calls us to something better, doesn't he? He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And so how do we size someone up? How do we judge them? Because if we use our own algorithms... When we count someone's worth, we'll find them lacking. I don't think you're worth my time. But what does Paul say? He says it's quite simple maths. Are they a brother or sister in Christ? They're valuable to your Lord. They're valuable to your Father, and so they're worth your time. They're worth your energy. That's, that's it. In humility, count others. Which others? All others. <laughs> in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that requires a heart of humility. That's why Paul had to mention that. In humility, do it. Now, not humiliation, okay? Humiliation says you are less. If it's out of humiliation, we're saying, oh, because I'm so rubbish, I should care for others more. Because I'm so terrible. Because I'm not worth anything, I should invest in others. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. You are, you are infinitely valuable to God, each and every one of you, precious to him. Because of that, when you look at another, you say, oh, so are they. So are they. That's humility. Humility actually isn't... Um, Again, this is a very British thing, isn't it? If you watch comedy, what do British comedians do the whole time? They put themselves down. Self-deprecation. It's a very British thing. That we constantly talk ourselves down. That's not humility. <laughs> humility is looking at God and saying, wow, he's amazing. He's good. <laughs> he's wonderful. <laughs> it's looking at another and saying they're worth something. And so I'm not going to preoccupy myself with me. And so in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let's keep going. There's good news coming. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Haven't we just done this one, Paul? <laughs> Haven't we just talked about this? He goes again. He talks about it again. Interesting, he says, look not only to your own interests. Your own interests matter to God. What you need matters to God the things that he has put in you. Maybe it's just the, the, the things that delight your heart. Maybe it's the long walk. Maybe it's the long bath. 
Maybe it's the time of friends or family. They're good things if they're done, if they're, if they're done with thankfulness and humility in service of God. They're wonderful things. They're things God has put in you. Even your desires for the church are good things when done in humility. I'd love the church to grow in this way. God has given me a gift to add here. Wonderful. Actually, that's not just good, that's necessary. In humility, those things are wonderful. But we don't stop at our own desires. We don't just think of our own desires, but we think of others. Paul says, don't stop at your own interest. And I wonder why he re-emphasizes this. I'm not sure. But while selfish ambition and conceit are things that creep into our hearts that make us very self-centered in, uh, in a way of pride, which is easy for all of us, I wonder whether he re-emphasizes this because some of us walk through seasons of life, life occasionally where we quite understandably need to focus on ourselves for a time. Maybe a significant health issue. Maybe a bereavement. Maybe a family issue with finances or, or whatever it is. And, and actually, quite understandably, maybe quite rightly too, we need to be more focused on what is going on in our lives. That's right. That can be appropriate. But I, but I wonder whether Paul is re-emphasizing this because for some of us, he is saying, but don't stay in that place. My dear friends, my brothers and sisters, if that is you, don't stay in that place. That's appropriate for a season, but you know that God has put something in you which your brother and sister in this church need. They have needs that only you can meet. They have things that you have gifts to contribute to. And so we don't stay only thinking of our own interests because God has placed you in this family for a reason. And there are things that he wants to use you for, for your good and for the church's good. I wonder whether that's why he's re-emphasizing it. For some of us, Actually, we need just the help to pick ourselves up again and say, yeah, this has, been a, this has been such a tough season. But I want to believe for God again that he has things for me in this family. If our passage ended there, we might feel pretty discouraged. Oh, goodness, I'm selfish. I think of myself. I'm, so, I'm full of self-pity. Oh, I'm doing it now. I'm full of self-pity now. And we wouldn't be tremendously encouraged. Actually, ironically, if we ended here, we'd go away thinking all more or less entirely about ourselves. But the passage doesn't end there. The passage doesn't end there because Paul gives one more instruction. And then he goes into the most beautiful motivation for all of the instructions he's just given. None of them are out of context. This poem brings the context to everything. He says this, the final instruction in verse 3. Oh, sorry, where are we going to go from? Oh, yeah, I'll go from the top. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. Paul starts with an instruction. Have this mind among yourselves. And then he just goes off on one. Then he just gets so excited about what he's calling us to do. Have this mind among yourself. What mind? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, which didn't say, actually, uh, although I am the eternal son of God, which he is, I'm going to come and be with my people. I'm going to come and save them. In humility, I will come down. He didn't look to his own comfort. Christ didn't look to his own ease or preference, but Christ chose humility on a scale which beggars belief. And he took on humanity, the eternal son, very God of very God, as the old creed says. He took on our flesh. He became one of us. When we were busy counting others less significant than ourselves, he didn't count a quality with God, a thing to hold on to with tight fists. He opened them. And he said, I count these people worth it. When we're going around counting, adding other people up, are they worth my time? Christ looked at us and he didn't count equality with God a thing to be crossed, but he emptied himself. This wasn't a holiday for Jesus. We're very clearly, very deliberately told, why did he come? He came to take the form of a servant. He took on humanity to serve us. That was the purpose. He did it to serve us You and me, the people of God, he did it to serve us. And if becoming a man, if taking on our frailty wasn't enough, he humbled himself further. This poem is a beautiful thing where Christ, who could not be higher, it says he emptied himself to become a man and then he humbled himself further into the depths where he could not become lower. He became obedient to the point of death, more even death on a cross most shameful execution method the Romans could come up with. The death where naked and ashamed he, he, he bore the sins of all of us. He lowered himself to the depths of despair for us, the eternal one. Christ lived, died and was raised to serve you, to love you. Naked and ashamed he took your shame. Bloodied and breathless, he took your death. Judged, though innocent, he took your guilt. Christ did that for us. Christ came not to be served, we're told, but, yeah, I always get that the wrong way around. (laughs) Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life, we're told. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, you see, when our hearts turn in, Christ emptied himself. That's what we're told. When our hearts think of us, he emptied himself. And so, my friends, this morning, we are selfish people. Let's just be honest about that. We so quickly become about us, but let's not settle for us. It's so disappointing when you can have Christ. He gave himself for you. If you don't know Jesus this morning, Christ gave himself for you. All you have to do is accept him. And this is the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? They're the greatest became the least. By becoming the least, his father exalted him to the highest place. It says that he exalted him the highest place. As Christ, though he died on the third day, the father raised him. And that means the father has now exalted him. He ascended to the father. He's exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name. Again, in English culture, that idea of a name is a bit odd, but a status, an authority, an honor, 
that is above every. You know, the name of Jesus isn't whispered in the same category as emperors and governors, kings or great monarchs. It's not the same thing. The name of Jesus is above every name. You know, something interesting about this passage, when it says he's given a name above every name, do you know it's not the name Jesus he's given? It says he's given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord. How did the Greek Old Testament refer to Yahweh? Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Christ is given the name above every name because he has been acknowledged in the resurrection as the eternal God he always has been. That is the name that he has. And so in becoming the least, Christ showed, the Father showed through Christ's resurrection and ascension that he was the greatest of all. And Paul says, have this mind. Have this mind. I bet you forgot that. I forget that every time I read it. That's how the passage starts. That's how the poem starts. Oh, guys, get along with each other. Serve one another. What's the motivation? Oh, well, because there's stuff to do. No, uh, because um, you should do. No, because Christ served you. Don't you remember? Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Don't you remember that, guys? Surely we can serve one another. Surely we can serve one another if we get that. If we don't, then our service will be begrudging, it'll be frustrated, it'll be cold, but if we get there, it'll be joyful. Will it be easy? No, probably won't be, at least at times. But it will say, wow, I gotta live like Christ. I gotta do it for him and through his power. And you know, the most beautiful thing is through our little acts of service, we proclaim the risen Christ. In the little things that we do, we get to honour that Jesus is Lord. When we have the privilege of serving on a Sunday morning team, waking up a little bit earlier than we would have, doing a job which maybe is quite behind the scenes, maybe it's not really thanked ever, but with a heart of love for Jesus, we get to proclaim that Christ is risen because he's the one who served us but he's now exalted to the highest place. So our little act of service does that. In our life groups, when we give that person who actually hogs the conversation more often than not, when we give them the space to talk, when we actually care about what they say, when we pray about them in the week, that little thing, maybe no one else will notice, but that little thing where you put someone else first that proclaims that Christ is risen. The humble king who died for us is now risen forever. The little act of service proclaims Christ as king. When you quietly do the housework, when you're thanked by no one, but your heart says, I do it for you, Lord, and you call me to love my family who are precious to me, in that moment you proclaim Christ as risen because he is the servant who is also the great king. Our humility and our little acts of service are echoes of his love and service of us. They exalt Christ as the risen Lord. We're going to end and we're going to respond. Um, I know this morning's looked a little bit different because of the various things we've done, but I just want to respond um, to that. Um, maybe Adam and um, Van jump up. But let's read that one more time. Let's read from verse three again. And let's just sit with these words because it's wonderful. I'm sure you'll all think what I've shared is absolutely you know, the best. But Christ's words are amazing. <laughs> Scripture is amazing. 
This is the stuff that we want to be coming back to. This is the rich food we feed on. And so Philippians 2 verse 3 says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that is the name and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so the glory of God the Father If you're able to why don't we stand we're just going to respond and then we're going to go um, into a song Some of you this morning I've talked about pride. I've talked about um, pride expressing itself in different ways, selfish ambition, a looking down on others, a self-pity. And you know that God has put his finger on a number of things. And we just, actually, the thing we need to do in that moment is repent. We need to say, oh, Lord, I've, I have been living like that, but not anymore. I want to live for you now. That's not a thing of heaviness. Repentance isn't a thing of of condemnation it's a beautiful release where we say actually in seriousness I confess my sin to you Lord because I'm turning away from it <laughs> I'm not living that anymore it is a wonderful joy our God is gracious and quick to forgive Christ's mercy is assured how do we know it because he came down for us for others of you I mentioned about that going cold maybe the season you've walked through has been incredibly difficult God wants to take you by the hand and say, walk with me again. You're not done. You're not done. There are things I have for you to do. For others of you, you don't yet follow Jesus. And you're wondering, actually, this Jesus, there's something about him. What is that? And maybe you're saying, actually, I want to follow him. Maybe you're saying, I want to find out more. But God is speaking to you this morning. He's calling you to something this morning. He says, don't live the way you have been. You could just live for yourself, but that's rubbish. That leads to nothing, that leads to death. But you could live for me, the one who served you and is king. Let me pray. Father, just as you've, uh, you're even now speaking to different one, ones of us in the room, Father, would you meet us by your spirit? Father, as various people even now in their hearts are repenting, as in seriousness they admit to you the ways that actually they've been walking away. Thank you, Father, that you welcome them with open arms, that you delight in a heart that is repentant. Father, give them encouragement right now, I pray. We pray, Lord. Father, for those who are particularly struggling in this season, Lord, lift their eyes to you. Let them see the great Jesus. 
And Father, for those in the room who are asking, actually, maybe this Jesus is more than I thought he was. I pray you would even right now speak to their hearts and say, come, follow me. That's what Jesus said the whole time on the earth. Come, follow me. Particularly that last one, if actually you're someone who wouldn't have called themselves a Christian coming into this morning, but you're saying maybe there is something about Jesus, um, please do grab uh, the person you came with who's a follower of Jesus. Maybe grab Phil, who's been leading the service. Maybe grab me. We want to show you more about Jesus. We want to tell you what it means to follow him. His call is simple. Follow me, he says. Let's worship together our risen King.